This is Recode Media with me, Peter Kafka. This is a special bonus episode of Recode Media. It comes to you from our Code Media Conference. This is a conversation I had with John Stanky. He's the COO of AT&T and the CEO of Warner Media. We focus mostly on the Warner Media part. Um, obviously, as you know, Warner Media is launching HBO Max as its entry into the streaming wars next spring. We talked about the strategy for that launch, the strategy for Warner Media in general criticism AT&T has gotten about its media business. Uh, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. I think you will enjoy it. Hi, John. You want to put on a conference that people want to attend and you have me come up first. That seems like a mistake. I think it's going to work out fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little sure. peppered up. It's good. Um, I want to, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your company, but I want to talk about someone who's not your company. Disney launched last week. Disney Plus. 10 million, um, I guess, sign-up subscribers. I'm not quite sure what the right metric is. As someone who is launching your own streaming service next spring, what did that 10 million number mean to you? They did a good job. I mean, good for them. Uh, they, uh, they're off to a good start. Uh, obviously, we start in a little different position with a little different product, and our, our point of view would be We'd like very much to see as many of our HBO subscribers migrate into the new product as possible. That gives us a nice base to work from. I think the bigger trick here in most of these streaming services is how many of the 10 million are still there six months from now, right? It's, it's managing churn and the, the life cycle of that customer. That's one of the biggest challenges. A lot of these streaming services are giving away for free or discounted. I got Disney Plus for free because I'm a Verizon customer for a year. At what point do you think you'll be able to, <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to end up paying you as well. Um, at what point do you think you can really assess the health of, of all the services that are launching this year and next year? How long before we sort of see who's actually winning? Um, look, I think my point of view in the next two to three years, this is a race to get scale on platforms. And so obviously you don't want to do anything that's reckless economically. But let's be cognizant of the fact that the goal here is to build a platform that has a scaled customer base on it. And in my case, I view that as, you, you know, you'd like entry to two-thirds of the U.S. households and then beyond the borders of the U.S. So, so you think three years out is a good time to go, all right, we see how this yeah. is shaking out. See, see who's uh, in the foot race is kind of building that scale. So let's talk about your strategy. I, I went to your Investor Day presentation. I think I understand it. I think some people might be confused about it. That's, I think, why you see a lot of comments about how, let's clear it up right how here. expensive HBO now, <laughs> HBO Max is because it's $15. But you said you want to migrate the existing HBO subs to HBO Max. That's, that's step one. Very much would like to. I think, as I said, I think I used the term at the investor conference. It's a bit of an IQ test to get twice as much content for the same price. Why wouldn't you want to do it? See, this is why I like having you on stage, because you say it's an IQ test, which you can flip that around and go, anyone who doesn't get HBO Max is stupid, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> um, but so the, the idea is you've got the existing HBO product that remains the same. Um, please renew Watchmen. It's amazing. And then you're going to have HBO Max, which is HBO plus other stuff. That's correct. And the idea is you're going to take everyone who's got HBO in theory and make them HBO Max subscribers for the same price. We're not going to make them do anything. Hopefully by choice they're going to look at it and say it's a great product and then something that they want to do and they choose to opt in and, and take advantage of that. And we, as we talked about at the investor day, um, some of those customers are customers of other distributors. The distributor ultimately will have to agree to sign into some kind of a distribution agreement with HBO Max, which 
we're optimistic that'll occur. But what's your what's your pitch to a Comcast or an Apple, for that matter, who's signed up an HBO subscriber and now you say, look, we want you to move them into this new thing? It's not a whole lot different than choosing to distribute HBO. Uh, one, you get to participate in the economics every month associated with that customer. That's probably better than what happens when you choose to put a icon on your set-top box to steer somebody over to Netflix because you don't get that monthly residual. Two, all that data that's generated gets put over into our data banks within Xander, then gets anonymized and aggregated. You can look at a nationwide basis of customer information that helps you as we move down the path to the AVOD side of things to monetize inventory in that fashion. We think that's very attractive. And three, look, this is a product that is of the genre of what we've done traditionally adding on to yep. pay TV. And we understand how to support that ecosystem. HBO in an earlier incarnation under Time Warner launched HBO Now, expected to get Comcast and the other distributors to get behind it, and they didn't. What makes you think it'll be different this time around? In what regard do you think they didn't get behind it? They weren't happy about it. They, were, they weren't going out of the way to market it. Um, a lot of pushback. We still have uh, you know, HBO subscribers out there, and I don't Correct. think selling standalone now isn't how I would necessarily mark their commitment to the product. It's selling HBO that's their commitment to the product. It's the same product. HBO Go allows the same feature functionality to a distributor that HBO Now does. So I think they've been supportive of it, and if the economics are right, they'll do that going forward. So I'm an HBO subscriber now, and there's an IQ test. I'm going to pass it. I'm going to get HBO Max because there's other stuff. Even if I don't want to watch it, it will cost the same amount of money. If you haven't been subscribing to HBO, what is the proposition that's going to make you an HBO Max subscriber? So generally speaking, if you haven't been subscribing to HBO, you know it's possible we haven't done a good enough job putting the product out in front of you. More than likely, it's because the content and how it's engineered doesn't hit your particular demo, and it isn't relevant to you. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of data and information that we have that suggests we do a pretty good job of penetrating the demos of which we create the content for. Max opens the aperture of that demo. It's intended to get to customers that look at HBO and say, well, I really just don't see enough there that resonates with me. Um, HBO's great content, it's great brands, done a remarkable job, not suggesting in any way, shape, or form we want to change that value proposition or that brand, but it does have a specific demo it attracts. Max allows us to start opening that aperture a bit, so somebody looks at that and says, yeah, there were a couple HBO shows I was interested in, but now there's four or five new ones that I'm really interested in, and that gets me over the hump to move in. I think I understand what Netflix's pitch is. We have a ton of stuff. The Disney Plus pitch is pretty straightforward. We have Disney, Marvel, Lucasfilm. If I'm trying to convince someone who hasn't paid 15 bucks for HBO to pay 15 bucks for HBO Max, what is the thing that's going to bring them over? What is the show? What is the brand? What is the idea? As we said, it's quality of the curation and that we, you know, I think we talked a lot about this at the Investor Day. The paradox of choice is actually driving a lot of frustration in the customer experience. We think we've done a nice job with HBO where a person who's attached to that brand knows they can go find content that's going to resonate with them that they like. Our job is to do the same thing with Max, which is for that demo that moves beyond the traditional HBO demo, we know we can go to HBO Max and find something that's going to be of the quality and caliber that we'll relate to and we like, and we can get there and find it quickly. 
and have a great experience around it. So it's a combination of enough depth that we get engagement on a daily basis from a household, but at the same time, we keep the quality factor up. And you're able to convince the folks who work at HBO now and, and customers of HBO out, and, out here that the stuff that I've been used to seeing from HBO isn't going to change in a significant way. I mean, if, I, if I have an understanding of what HBO programming is, that's not going to change. Yeah, I think it's important to understand just how we're approaching this. Our HBO programming team is still the HBO programming team. It's the very same group of people that were here the day we, we closed the transaction. They continue to be funded, budgeted, and supported in a standalone fashion. They continue to see the funnel of opportunities and projects the same way they do today. About all that's changed is a little more collaboration that occurs with that team and another group of individuals that are working on expanding that aperture. Sometimes one team will hear a pitch, they'll say, you know, this isn't really quite right on brand for us, but maybe it works over here. Let me channel you down the hall over to this group over here to take a look that's at That's not it. an HBO show, that's an HBO Max it show. It may be a better Max show. It may hit a particular demo that we're trying to work there or have the right tone and tenor. But nothing has changed in terms of what we want to do to curate HBO in terms of the number of hours we're investing in, continue to ramp up and, and stay at that increased level that we uh, initiated and chartered at the time we closed the transaction. You made a reference to the folks at HBO still being there. You brought that up on the Investor Relation Day as well. Richard Plepler obviously is gone, and a lot of other folks have left HBO. You're contending that the people who do the programming part of it are there for the most part. Casey Bloys and his team have done a remarkable job running the programming, investing, picking the right shows for uh, an extended period of time are all still there. So, um, I think last March, I ended up writing a headline that said, all the people who used to run Time Warner have now left. It was Jeff Bukas, Plepler, David Levy, Kevin Suchihara, left for different reasons. Um, when you guys bought the company, did you expect you would see that brain drain that quickly? Well, I wouldn't characterize it that there's been a brain drain. First of all, a lot of very capable leaders. We had, as I've said publicly many times, this was not one company, it was a collection of literally four companies, if you think about it. And each of those four companies had its own leadership and its own overhead. Four payroll systems, four I have different holidays that each of the organizations take, believe it or not. And so part of what this was about was ensuring that when we put things together, we could take the best of everything and get ourselves down to a scaled media company instead of three or four subscale media companies. We started that process. So in that process of moving from three to one, yes, there are some individuals as we started to re-engineer jobs and change how things get done that look at it and say, gosh, that's not the job I was hired into. I wanted to be the CEO of this sandbox, this size, doing these things. And now you're asking me to maybe do a different job. And somebody says, that's not my gig. It's not where I am in my career right now. That's and Richard Plepler you're talking I, about. No, I'm just talking in general. And somebody steps away from it. We've had others, folks like Gerhard Zeiler and Jeff Zucker, uh, that have said, you know, I like this new construct and I'm committed to where it's going and they stay with it. Um, you know, Kevin, unfortunately, uh, had a little bit of a mishap and stepped away, but um, you know, Kevin was somebody who was going to carry forward. Life gives you lemon, make lemonade. We got a great individual, Ann Sarnoff, who came in behind Kevin, who's off to a fabulous start. 
very capable and professional individual. And then we hired Bob Greenblatt in, and Bob, you know, is a, is a great individual working in the creative side of things. Has added a tremendous amount of value into our business and broadened the aperture on the kind of content that we can build. So I don't feel like there's any brain drain whatsoever. I think we're in great shape. You're a longtime AT&T guy. This is a new world for you relatively. Um, obviously, you had some idea what you're getting into. What has surprised you about running this company and media business in general? Um, you know, I don't, I think I had an idea of what I was getting into. I think maybe, and I shared this with you, I think one time when you and I spoke, uh, maybe the one thing that I didn't fully process, which is a bit ironic given that I, I'm a byproduct of eight major M&A transactions in my career. Um, this wasn't one M&A transaction, it was three, uh, because it was three very distinct businesses. And while I knew that, and I knew that they ran very autonomously and independently, I don't think I fully functioned that said that, you know, you know all those decisions you make after an M&A transaction, you're gonna to have to make them three times. Um, that particular piece uh, probably put a few more cycles in than I would have expected uh, and made things a little bit choppier than I would have liked. Uh, but other than that, I expected it was going to be a challenge. I expected it was going to be different and it hasn't disappointed in that regard. We were talking backstage, I was looking at the comments you made <laughs> summer of 2018 to Plepler and a big internal audience. And you said a lot of what you said is what you have done, right? You have, you've, the strategy you laid out happens. for HBO is, is widening the aperture. I think you used that exact phrase. Um, I think you probably expected more or less folks to say, like you said. There was uh, an activist shareholder signed, uh, came in uh, a few months ago, had a whole series of complaints about the way AT&T was run. Um, and one of them was that they said you should not be running Warner Media. What's that like when someone buys $3 billion worth of stock and says we'd like this guy to not have that job? Well, it's not something you aspire to when you wake up in the morning, if that's your question. Yes. Um, did you, what were the, then I'm presumably, I'm assuming you are, end up talking to the folks at Elliott about that critique. Do you have to explain to them why you are good at this job, why you should have this job? I have now met the folks at Elliott since they made those comments. I had not met them before, but apparently they had an opinion that they had formed prior to meeting me. I sense that maybe some of the narrative, uh, I don't know if it was in the media or what they were characterizing is um, that for some reason I'm trying to hang on to this job irresponsibly because I like doing the things that come with it. I, I will tell you, while I very much like what I do, the reason that I'm continuing to have a role at Warner Media in addition to my other responsibilities is I, what I would consider to be intelligent management decisions around, as you bring people in, have new leaders come in and settle them into jobs, as you restructure an organization, uh, pivot that organization to a new product launch and a new position, there's a right time and a wrong time to transition leadership. And I think we're trying to be very deliberate around when that right time is. And I've, as I've said publicly, I don't expect that I will function in the head of Warner Media uh, in, in forever, uh, that there will be a change that will come. Can we narrow that time frame from forever to something closer? Sure, sometime between now and less than forever. Right. So, <laughs> and frankly, Are you guys looking for a replacement for you? I started looking for talent the day I showed up in the job. And so, you know, I, I think that's one reason why we're in a position to do some things like have Bob come in, uh, always looking for good talent and always looking for an opportunity to ensure that the team's a better and stronger team. Uh, but there's clearly a desire on our part to 
ensure that we have a leader there over the long haul when the time is right. Hey, this is Peter. I'm going to pause this conversation so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. And now back to a conversation from Code Media. Jeff Bukas, who had effectively your job uh, prior to leaving, uh, famously just said, synergy is bullshit. The idea of getting Warner Brothers to work with HBO and to work with Turner, it doesn't make any sense. These things should be run as siloed uh, operations. Now that you've been in this job for a while, do you have a better idea of what he was getting at? Um, So I think I have a good sense of where Jeff was, and I I don't want to speak on his behalf, but it's not like he and I haven't had conversations about the business and his point of view. And to Jeff's credit, he had a remarkable run at Time Warner. when you look at what he did for return to shareholders, what he inherited, how he pruned the portfolio, made decisions, did really, really good job to his credit. Uh, what he had at the end was a collection of assets, and Jeff, I think, pretty early in his tenure, knew what his end game was, and I think he rightfully saw that media was going to consolidate, and I think he rightfully saw that it was going to be a scaled business. Um, I think he rightfully saw that at some point in time, a media company was also going to have to have distribution and that that was going to take some scale to get there. Jeff's strategy, in my view, and I believe informed by conversations with him, was keeping those assets independent, gave him the absolute most flexibility and optionality in getting through that end game. I don't think he knew exactly how it was going to end or who might be there for a particular asset. Keeping them separate, having their own payroll systems and their own accounting practices gave you optionality around what to do with those assets in the event you couldn't sell them as a whole. I think Jeff would sell off music, you sell off AOL, et cetera, as you go. Yeah, and and so if you get down to the end game, did the networks have to be maybe different from the studio? And not knowing how that was gonna end, he gave himself choice and flexibility. I think Jeff, the fact that he sold is an acknowledgement at that time that he believed the business was at a crossroads or something else needed to be done. The models needed to change. Scale was important. Data and distribution were important. And lo and behold, we show up. Well, why does media and distribution have to be tethered together? We've gone back and forth on what model works. Time Warner used to have Time Warner Cable. Um, Netflix, the company that you and Disney and everyone else are chasing, has no distribution. They're an app. They've got 160 million users. Why, why does a telco need to have media, or why does a media need to have a telco company? Well, I, I think first, before we talk about physical distribution versus vertical integration, the question is, does a media company need to be vertically integrated? And let's use your example. Netflix is vertically integrated. Why? Because it adds a be- it's a better product to the end user customer. Because the market... They're buying their own shows, making their own shows, and then sending them out. No, they have control of the product and the delivery of the user interface and the experience that a customer has. And because they collapse parts of the value chain, the customer gets a better cost value proposition than what they get. Uh, I think that's an important thing, and that's what's changing the face of media. Now, what does a media company need to get to scale for vertical integration? It needs data. And it needs distribution cloud to be able to get a bunch of customers at the end to pay for all that content that has to be vertically integrated. I wouldn't confuse distribution per se with physical infrastructure, although there's a benefit to it, but having real customers 
that buy things and pay subscriptions every month that you talk to every month certainly can help you get penetration in a game that's gonna be a scaled game over time. Couldn't you just say, look, Time Warner, whatever we're gonna call it, Warner Media, has lots of great assets. They could take on Netflix by themselves. They don't need to be owned by a telco. What does the telco combining with the media company do for them they couldn't do on their own? Again, I don't wanna put words into Jeff's mouth, but I think Jeff's decision was he didn't feel he had the flexibility to do that. In fact, let's go look at the reality of history. If you recall, there was an activist that came into Time Warner at one point. We also had a somewhat unwelcome takeover that came in during that period of time. Uh, Jeff didn't think that was the right place for the business to be, and the management team did some very overt things to try to fend off that unwelcome entree and to also keep the activists at bay. So I would say that he felt like he didn't have the flexibility and the latitude to be able to do that. Here we are, fast forward today. I think we're trying to take the long haul and the view of value creation for our shareholders. And one could suggest that right now with a little bit of the activity that's been going on in our stock that there may be some folks that are testing that supposition as to whether that's the right thing to do and we're having to make that case. We do have a lot of folks that have some kind of distribution, physical or otherwise, getting into media. Net neutrality could well be on its way out. That's um, gonna be tested in the courts. Um, if we end up really removing the net neutrality rules that we've had in place for a few years, uh, if you are a smaller uh, player, should I be worried about the prospect of an AT&T which has physical pipes, uh, actual wires, and distribution, um, having so much content and then an Apple and an Amazon and really these sort of handful of very big companies controlling distribution and content? Boy, I, you know, I, you'd be hard pressed to point to an instance of anybody's behavior that would suggest that there is any kind of discrimination, favoritism or anything else going on and how people get to content on the internet over a broadband connection. Uh, it's a problem that's uh, non-existent. There's absolutely nothing that's occurring in practice. I'd be far more concerned over the it's scale. It's been against the law I'd to do I'd be far that. more concerned over the scale of what's occurring in terms of distribution platforms on mobile OSs and terms and conditions associated with new product development on that and what that does to squash innovation than anything to do with how traffic over the internet's being treated today. So don't blame the cable guys and telco guys, point at Google and Apple. There's nothing to blame, there's nothing going on. Right, but there are rules that prevent you from discriminating and at some point there may not be. And before there were rules, it was wide scale abuse occurring? But this is always the argument they bring up that it could happen. Before there were rules, there, were wide, there was wide scale abuse occurring? No, that's a rhetorical question. There, there was nothing, it's not happened. Okay. We all want a good broadband connection that people can use to get wherever they want to get. Uh, let me ask about the ad business. Well, we've got a couple minutes left. Um, you guys are in the ad business. You're going to add a advertising-supported version of HBO Max at some point. But if I look at Netflix ad-free, Disney Plus ad-free, HBO is ad-free, the first version of HBO Max is ad-free, are we moving towards a world where lots of people are not going to be seeing ads by choice, paying for it? And then what does that mean for the rest of the advertising business. So uh, this, right or wrong, if you ask me to prognosticate out a couple of years, uh, I'm, I would make a call that says two-sided monetization models will be necessary to satisfy customer demand. Why do I believe that? If you think about how much content is available to customers today, 
especially that which is bringing tonnage, a vast majority of it was developed on ad-supported models. It's just been repurposed for the second run into subscription. I think what we know about customers is they like a broad selection of content. The broadest selection of content that will be available to a customer is if both subscription and advertising support the development and investment in content. We're gonna burn through that library of ad-supported development that occurred over decades soon after people watch Friends for the 19th time. They'll eventually burn out on it and they're gonna say, well, what's next? And what's next is there aren't going to be a whole lot of shows that have 300 episodes that have been created as we've kind of moved away from long-running broadcast constructs for scripted TV. So I do believe that if a customer wants a broad selection at the most affordable price point and the most optionality, that we're gonna see both subscription and ad-supported models be other. That's my two cents. So I'm gonna choose to pay for HBO, pay for Netflix, pay for Disney Plus, and then I'll also watch some stuff for free. You have some choice. If you wanna go and see something else and you have some content that interests you that may be outside of that particular ecosystem and you want a pay-per-drink basis or you want something that uh, looks like a lower entry price point, you don't wanna quite shell out as much, but still get at some content, yeah, you may endure some advertising. So you don't look, think we're looking at a generation of, of consumers that has been trained not to have ads and, and just will resist it at all times? We're looking at a generation of consumer that would like everything for free. There's no question about that, but I think that's more of an artifact of disposable income than the individual. I think our job is to create an opportunity for people to work be gainfully employed, earn a living, have disposable income, and that's a broader societal issue that we kind of need to get through. One last question, we'll open up to the audience. Um, and there are microphones down here and up there, so you guys can move to them now if you want. Uh, sports, we've got a lot of folks coming on stage today and tomorrow that are in the sports business. You guys are uh, through Turner, um, Sunday Ticket on DirecTV. We keep hearing that sports rights have to stop going up they keep going up. At what point did, does AT&T say, we don't want to continue to escalate sports rights, we're going to step out of this sport or that sport? Well, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, I, I honestly don't think that we are going to see a slowing of the escalation in sports costs in the near term for what I would consider to be more marquee or premium leagues. Um, I think they're valuable. They're valuable in terms of maintaining the part of the network business um, that, that is out there. And as a result of that, that scarce real estate is going to continue to accrue value. Um, in terms of when do you say enough is enough, uh, you know, I think it depends on each particular uh, transaction you're involved in. And you look at what you're bidding and you ask what the size of the audience is and what the combination of advertising and subscription supported. Here's where dual-sided models pay for very expensive content, both subscription and advertising, supporting sports. You'll make that decision on a case-by-case -case basis. You've got Sunday Ticket at DirecTV. Um, you're gonna keep it there? DirecTV is shrinking. The Sunday Ticket presumably will get more expensive. Is that a question? That is a question, yeah. yeah. Are you gonna keep it at DirecTV? Right now, the product is licensed to be sold on a satellite service, and uh, with, there's other things we'd like to do with it, but it's a two-party transaction, and the NFL every year evaluates what they wanna do with their licensing rights. And You'd like to be able to bundle in the digital rights and other rights to the satellite rights as well? I, I think just generally speaking, if we were doing what we wanted to do to meet customers where they'd like to be, we'd like some flexibility 
to move beyond satellite to distribute it. So if anyone here knows anyone at the NFL, you can pass that message along. Do we have questions for John? I think the NFL probably has heard that. I think they probably have as well. On the HBO Max side of things, you mentioned in working with the Comcast and the Charters, one of the values to them would be able to monetize the inventory. Does that mean a Comcast would be able to sell inventory within the HBO Max ad-supported tier? And if so, what would the relationship or the guardrails be between a Comcast and a Xander? Because I imagine they would have competitive concerns. Yeah, sure. That's a good question. So yes, we fully expect that once the AVOD environment goes up, that it's not just going to be our content and our avails and inventory that's in that environment. So we very much would love this platform over time to receive content from others as well as inventory from others to go with that content. That's where that value proposition comes back through Xander. The way Xander operates today, it continues to have firewalls that are set up internally just like any other wholesale business would have to ensure that it's done on a level playing field. Um, whether, I don't want to prognosticate on behalf of Comcast as to whether or not they'll be comfortable with that, but there certainly are others out there beyond Comcast who can bring inventory and content in that uh, may find it to be an acceptable arrangement. Clearly, Comcast has been investing in an ad tech stack of their own. Um, I expect they're going to continue to try to push that business forward. And that's why when we started and we talked about this being a foot race over the next couple of years to gain scale on a platform, it's one example of why I think it's so important. So non-Warner Media media companies would be able to have their content, their shows or movies distributed within would HBO. fully expect that the platform at some point in time is a platform that we allow others to bring content into. I don't think, from my point of view, we're ever going to have uh, a lock or a monopoly on creativity. And, you know, I think you've, there's been a number of articles actually written the last couple of weeks about the frustration and the fragmentation of the bundle and what's going to happen. Uh, we're basically unbundling to rebundle. At some point, there will be platforms that re-aggregate and rebundle. And we'd like the platform ultimately to be a place where re-aggregation occurs. And that doesn't just mean our content. Question over here. Yeah, so I hear a lot of, from the media companies about originals, creatives, there's a war coming, you're entering the streaming war with a major player. I'd like you to talk about how you're technically preparing for modern warfare in a streaming battle where tech and data are clearly game changers for the counterpart down the street. For me with Netflix, I'd love to hear how you're preparing your company for a tech battle in the streaming wars. Yeah, so I think everybody starts this race with, uh, you know, there's, uh, at the simplest form, there's three things you need. You need great content, you need a great tech platform, and you need to have exceptional distribution and ability to run a customer life cycle. And you have all three of those things and you can be in the business. I think everybody starts this race on those three dynamics in a different place. Um, I don't lose any sleep whatsoever about our ability to build content at scale. We're we're world-class in that regard in terms of the number of hours we turn out, and I'm confident we'll continue to do that. Through a combination of Warner Media and AT&T, I think we're in decent shape on the tech side. But look, we've got some muscles to build there, and we're gonna, we're gonna ramp probably a little bit slower there than we do on the content side. And we've gone through growing pains already just in the last year. Um, Did what I, happened at Disney last week where they stumbled on the first day, did that give you pause or that make you go, let's make sure we're ready for this? No, it doesn't give me pause because I, we do enough scale distribution of content today and we have enough products out there that we've had our own moments like that. 
Um, we've, you know, we've run Game of Thrones on Sunday with four million simultaneous streams and know what it's like when everybody hits it at 8 p.m. You know, those kinds of things happen in this space, and I'm not going to suggest we're immune to it, but we know that those moments can occur. Uh, do I think we're at world-class on tech yet? No. Do I think we have the right to get there if we continue to invest and we're persistent and that we can put a value proposition out in front of the technical com community that people say, that's a project I want to work on, that's something I'm passionate for? Yes, I think we can be competitive in that regard. Okay. Two quick questions, one from Rich. Yeah, you've talked a lot about scale and the importance of scale, and you've talked about Netflix and talked about Disney Plus and all these guys, but how much do you think about Google and Facebook? Ultimately, it's about consumers' attention and time, right? And when you're strategically looking at what you're trying to build and accomplish, how much does that weigh those two companies that have been incredibly aggressive, and every time something new pops up on the horizon that people spend a bunch of time on, they acquire it, how much does that weigh into how you think about the future? It weighs incredibly heavily on every single day and every single decision. And uh, it's not, you missed Amazon in yeah. your calculus. And yeah. it not only weighs in terms of competing for attention and engagement, but it's also the dynamic of how is monetization going? Is anybody ever going to pay for a piece of content again in its own right? Or will it all be subsidized by some other transaction, a hardware transaction, a marketplace transaction, something, right? Um, those things are really important issues right now. And so, um, you know, look, in this grand scheme of everything that's going on, we're just a little company trying to eke out an hour of customer time a day. And um, we're up against the folks. Kind of the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly in, in the relative, truth. you look at the numbers and... It's, it's exactly the truth. And in that context, it's not easy work, right? But it is the work for survival. It's what we need to accomplish. Don, you get the last question for John Stanky, the underdog. <laughs> hey, John. So um, uh, we in the media tend to focus a lot on Netflix debt load uh, as it tries to expand and continues to take on debt. Well, AT&T is sort of the king of uh, media debt at this moment. You've got around $150 billion in debt on the books. How do you embark on this uh, costly content war at the same time as you're building out a 5G network, which is also estimated, what, $100 billion in infrastructure cost over time? How can you balance both those things? Can, can AT&T really afford to do this? At scale? Yeah, we can. First of all, we generate a lot of cash, right? This is, yes, we have a lot of debt, but we're a big business that generates a lot of cash and has some very profitable and, and, and fantastic franchises that we can continue to manage. And I would also tell you, if you think back about when those investments have been made, you know, some of that debt and what we've done is to invest in Spectrum over the last decade that is what enables that move into 5G to have that transition in. And the best way to get into that business is to already have an advantage and attractive spectrum position. So, um, you know, we gave some pretty detailed guidance uh, earlier this month or late last month, I guess it was now, um, and walked through how we're going to allocate that capital over the next three years, what portion of it's going to pay down debt, what we're using for share buyback and what we're investing back in our business and still investing over $20 billion a year into the infrastructure that's necessary. Um, we think we've got the right equation, the right balancing equation. And I think to the extent that we're successful in the market, we'll do just fine. John, thank you for your time. Peter, thank you. Appreciate it. See you.